Director's Club with Brad and Al. We're podcasting as one of the planets orbiting the now playing network. Here over at the Director's Club, we take a look at the films of a single director, their breakout films, career touchstones, personal labors of love, and hidden gems amongst their filmography. You can never tell what themes and connections to other films can come up when you look at the director's entire body of work. Come join us on the film journey. In this episode, our journey is a dark and contemplative one as we look at the films of Hungarian director Bella Tarr. Howdy folks, I'm Al. And I'm Brad. And we're very much looking forward on this guy as we explored his work, we find that he has a very, very unique career. He has a person who has a signature style, but that style was explored here and there in his earlier films in different ways. But what style is that? Well, there's kind of two ways to answer that. I think one is it's his very own. It's it's the uh, Bellatar genre. Because once he gets into making films in his signature style, they really are like no other films that I've ever seen. Looking at it a little bit differently, every type of film has a place in film history, has influences, has a genre. And in this case, it's a genre that's a lot less known, very uncommercial, But for fans of a certain type of art film, it has become extremely valued. And it's known as sometimes contemplative film, contemplative cinema, or slow cinema, which in this case is not being used in a derogatory way, just a way to describe it. I guess one way of presenting the kind of effect is uh, there's a similar movement in in culinary circles called the slow food movement. And the idea is is that if you wolf down a delicious meal, you can really like it. But if you take the time to really savor every morsel that you are ingesting, it's a particular different kind of pleasure can be had. And I find that comes, comes from a great many of these films in the contemplative vein. Now, unlike though, for food, you get a taste of it and you're gonna and you automatically react to it. But contemplative requires just a little more attention from from an audience. Right. That's a really good analogy. So what are the qualities we're looking at here? We're looking at long takes. In the case of, of Bellatar and other similar directors, you could have a single take that goes five minutes. 10 minutes, 15. It's very different from what you're going to see even at more adult-oriented films at the multiplex, where if if a take lasts more than a minute, it's considered a pretty long take. Mm -hmm. Other qualities include uh, use of silence. There's often long passages of wordlessness, of either looking at characters or what the characters are looking at and trying to understand them through film language instead of folk and languages. And this all ties into an emphasis of mood over story. There usually is a story, but it will be de-emphasized. It's going to unfold 
in a different way than we're used to in standard narrative films. That's right. But I would venture to go and say that that conventional Hollywood films also deal mostly in mood rather than story. Nobody goes and appreciates a film such as Raiders of the Lost Ark or Star Wars for its intricate jigsaw puzzle plot. Mm -hmm. There is a mood of excitement, entertainment, fun, and enjoyment that carries people through inconsistencies and things that people would not pass over were they not so entertained. Right, so what we're really talking about here is a different kind of mood. Yes, and a more extensive exploration by people watching of that mood. Many films, when if you delve into them, you can enjoy them on other levels, as well as the surface pleasure. The contemplative ones, it takes a little more give from you for you to like be not a passive observer or a passive reactor, for you to look at the movie and, and go, hmm, well, what am I looking at? And if you try to look at the details and the feeling that the scene evokes from you, you can find opportunities to savor in these films. And rarely what we'll be looking at are happy, well-adjusted people having a great time. <laughs> yes, that's so true. <laughs> the subject matter here is often going to be bleak. It's going to deal with loneliness. It's going to deal with maybe existential questions. And in that vein, often the setting is going to be very realistic. It's going to be often an outdoor setting where the environment is commenting on what we're seeing as much as the characters. It's going to be in a place that is emphasized as much as the people. So not every contemplative film has all these aspects to them. And we're going to find that Bellatar himself uh, picks and chooses. There's some overlaps with other kind of genres, particularly neorealistic films. Mm -hmm. And Tar will have a portion of his career that focuses on that. So hopefully, if you're not already a fan of these kind of movies, uh, your curiosity is piqued, and you may want to know about some of the other directors that were influences on the genre and, and how it came about. And, and there are some very renowned, more traditional directors who kind of dabbled in this. So in France, the films of uh, Robert Brisson, or in Italy... Michelangelo Antonioni, or in Russia, Andrei Tarkovsky, are all filmmakers who have elements of contemplative cinema in them. One movie that I think is uh, useful kind of to describe often how these movies unfold is a Belgian movie which uh, was directed by Chantal Ackerman called Jean Dillman. This is a film about a housewife a uh, single mother. Basically, we follow her for three days. We follow her throughout her apartment doing her chores, doing the cooking, doing the cleaning. And all this unfolds in a very realistic way. But we also find out that to help make ends meet, she is a prostitute. So the days are bookended by uh, visits from John's. You see her attitude change with each day, with each John. So while it appears that we're simply watching repetitive motions of daily household work, what it's doing is 
giving you more perspective on the character's internal life, on her motivations, and who she is, and, and who she'll become. Often, a movie is very dependent on the kind of premise that it sets itself up in the beginning. And Jean Dielman is kind of the ultimate example of how the premise works in many contemplative films, because it sets up this structure. It's over the course of three days. And by setting up the structure, when you understand that this is a person, a character whose life is so regimented and everything must happen just so. So when eggs start breaking that shouldn't, when phrases start getting mentioned that uh, shouldn't be said, it becomes almost like a thunderbolt as you realize that Although this woman is getting more and more frayed. They're paying attention to these details of her, the regimented life pays off wonderfully when you see what the end result is in Dealman. It's it, a perfect example of the value of what contemplative cinema can do. And the slowness of it pays off. It's not there accidentally because if you just showed a number of scenes where in one scene she had a particular attitude, next scene something happens, third scene her attitude changes. That tells the story in a way that doesn't hit as deep as this particular film does because you're spending the time to get to know her. The time spent is part of the viewing process. So as we talk about shot length and pacing of these films, it's really important to note that this is not incidental, that this is inherent to the storytelling. Right. In the best contemplative films, it has not come across a gimmick. It's not a stunt. It aims to an ideal of what the Russian director you mentioned earlier, Tarkovsky, said in his book. He, In fact, he named it the title of his book. is called Sculpting in Time. He says, time is actually one part of a component of getting a film experience on not just a whole movie basis, but on a scene-to-scene basis. Not just the value of the images that we see, but how these images are held and how we as viewers flow through those images and their effect on us. That is something that's underappreciated in, I would say, in conventional filmmaking, but Tarkovsky values it and many of the fellow contemplative artists really put an emphasis on that. Yes, and and I'd like to move on to a more modern example, which is actually the first contemplative film I've ever seen, which is called uh, Liverpool, directed by Lissandro Alonso, an Argentinian director who released this movie in 2008. Seeing a lot of more modern versions of the genre, this, I'd say, is very typical of where the style has arrived. The plot is a sailor traveling to his home village to see his mother after 20 years, and we follow him along this journey. In many ways in that film, you're looking through the journey of a small person who is involved in these bigger endeavors that end up dwarfing him. And time and time again, as he makes his way towards his family, who live on this very snowy heights of a small mountain village, 
he is dwarfed by this giant ship, which is where he had a job in the beginning, to the different taverns and restaurants and other places he goes while making his way to the snowy peaks of the village itself. Do you feel this sense of longing from him from how he reacts to some simple things as eating uh, dinner or trying to ha- uh, find a directions. This reveals a person who is looking for something missing and it helps you feel this, these missing pieces while seeing how his diminished capacity in this landscape and it builds and builds on it so that when the title, the reason behind the title is finally revealed, it's uh, very poignant Right. And what we're seeing is real life unfolding on a giant screen. Obviously, these films are very low budget. When you talk about the ship in Liverpool, it's a real ship that they filmed at the docks, Mm -hmm. whether they had permission to or not. Right. And when he's in a, a cafe or walking along a lonely, uh, snowy road, it's really there. And I want to draw a distinction between this type of filmmaking and what Bellatar does, because Bellatar is a little different in that he builds sets. He uses music. He uses more of the craft of conventional filmmaking to convey his visuals than will often be seen in a contemplative film like Liverpool. So in the last few decades, contemplative filmmakers have risen in just about every nation and are often some of the most critically acclaimed. They're all different from each other, but they all bring value because nobody goes into this kind of filmmaking for purely commercial purposes. There is an artistic statement here. So if you enjoy the work of Bellatar, other directors to consider are Sai Ming Lang from Taiwan, Pedro Costa from Portugal, Abbas Kurostami from Iran, Carlos Rodegas from Mexico, Hao Su Sen from Taiwan, and Afichet Fong Wurasetakun from Thailand, better known as Joe. <laughs> and I'll apologize for all the names there I mispronounced, as well as all the mispronunciations that are certain to happen throughout. <laughs> yes, unfortunately, since we are neither of us are of Hungarian descent, we may get some of the names mispronounced. So uh, apologies out in advance for that. And in case you think all this escaped notice of uh, American filmmakers, uh, we are have a bit of a tradition here, too, as well. Uh, Gus Van Zant, known for more commercial kind of films, also has made some contemplative films, uh, one called Jerry, which eschewed the no-stars rule by having Matt Damon and Casey Affleck in it, uh, another film called Elephant. Kelly Reichardt, made a film called Meek's Cutoff that's very much in the contemplative tradition, but this one is a contemplative Western. And I would even venture to go and say that Richard Linklater, in many of his films, touches in on things from the contemplative cinema, especially in his Before Sunrise 
trilogy. So much of those films are about the sense of place and about people having normal conversations and enjoying these particular moments without any idea of what's going to necessarily happen next. And that's considerably less of a concern. So now that we've kind of given uh, a little bit of context, we'll move on to the man himself. Bellatar began as an actor in Budapest and became part of a local movement known as the Budapest School, which was a uh, group of avant-garde artists and, and filmmakers working on experimental films to challenge what was then the uh, communist state rule. A lot of these films were done in the realism style and were somewhat similar as Tar's first films are to another acclaimed American filmmaker, John Cassavetes. Cassavetes was known for pioneering a new style of cinema which was focused on incredible close-ups, a very jittery camera that would be often veer across from one person to another, and conflicts between people that were often set to a high emotional pitch. Emotions are very, very raw oftentimes in Cassavetti's films, and there is a lot of dramatic weight given to both how the characters express themselves and the claustrophobic, skitterish way that Cassavetti films them. Yes, this came in at around uh, around the same time as method acting became very popular. And maybe the ultimate Cassavetti's film for the type we're discussing here would be Faces. It's very much claustrophobic character pieces where you get right into their faces and they get into each other's faces. If you then watch the first three Bellatar movies, this style seems very familiar. But Bellatar claims that he had never seen a John Cassavetes film until after he made his films. Mm, sounds a little bit like he's maybe trafficking in the Herzogian levels of... <laughs> deliberate magical honesty with your audience let's <laughs> put it that way because his uh first film family nest is very very much familiar towards anyone who has seen faces <laughs> This is a film from 1979 about nine members of two families who are crammed into far closer quarters than any would like. Many conflicts arise with a domineering father who has a particularly fraught relationship with his son's wife, as the young couple realize that salvation might only be found by moving into a home of their own. Now, uh, this film, as well as the next one, uh, will feature non-professional actors, but there is, I think, an intensity going on between these interactions. I mean, the question is, to what end is that? Because 
this uh, father is quite the the piece of work. He thinks that uh, that his his main conflict is with his daughter in law, who he sees as an interloper in the household, and he wants his sons to be more of a authoritarian figures, just like he is. These dinner table conversations is shot entirely in close up, so you just zoom from one face filling the screen to another. Exactly. And there's an immediacy here. But do you think there's a resonance here? Right. There, the, There's one kind of resonance in the sense that their characters are violating their own personal space and the way it's filmed, uh, you feel that they're violating your space as well. It's a, he's very effective at delivering an, a, a feeling of intense discomfort and displeasure upon the people you're really watching. <laughs> now, do you get value from it? Unfortunately, I think in this particular movie, oftentimes Tar takes it one step too far and sometimes three steps too far to traffic in something called miserableism, which is a fancy way of saying misery porn. Mm-hmm. Yeah. For, for example, there's a character during this argument is a, a friend of the, a friend of one of the family members who's a gypsy. And this was a, an opportune time to have four or five people casually put in racist remarks, which is nothing compared to what happens when the soldier's, like lead her outside to uh, help her get home and then proceed to sexually assault her in a sustained five minute sequence. This has the result of like now making it. So I don't really care about the two guys who are involved and apart from wanting them dead. (laughs) So I'm less caring when they reoccur later in the film. Well, do you care more about the daughter-in-law who has to live with all these terrible people? (laughs) She starts off by making very valid points about how she has to hold her household together in this confined space with raising a child and the husband is away. But as the movie goes on, her position becomes less and less tenable as it becomes more and more apparent that she's had not just one affair, but perhaps a a considerable amount of affairs while the husband is away. I think the film is at its strongest at a point which takes a curve into neo neorealism the italian movement upon like looking at people in social situations and trying to honestly deal with the troubles that they encounter in an economic and social way when to try to get the family nest she has to go and talk to a bureaucrat and there is a very sustained argument where she's pleading and talking on these different angles and is shot down at every turn by a uh, nonplussed, vaguely emphatic person who says, nevertheless, there's nothing he can do. So in that part, that part, I have a very nicely amount of sympathy for her. And that really ties into something Tar's trying to do in a way that might be less obvious to us as American viewers, which is to make a pointed political statement. This was an era, the late 70s, in in real life in Hungary, there was a massive housing shortage. So it was not uncommon for families to live seven, eight, nine, ten people in a household. We can imagine how that kind of close quarters would create 
tensions to outright battles within even a functional family, let, let alone this crew. On the film itself, though, every step forward it does in trying to fairly deal with it comes with a step back as Tar pushes the scale a little too much in terms of saying, boy, doesn't this suck. For example, the father, while is very unpleasant to encounter for the first 45 minutes, eventually he gets put to a more agreeable position because he starts making good points upon all the economic troubles he saddled with raising the family in this cramped space. But at that point, you where you start thinking, okay, I sort of see where he's coming from. Then he starts being viciously accusatory towards the female wanting the house, mm-hmm. uh, calling her a slut and worse. And it curves to just show that he is uh, lusting after this other lady to a incredibly gropey degree, showing he is a gigantic hypocrite in terms of and any kind of standard on that score. So honestly, I can't really disagree with your criticisms there. I I think they're valid. They might have bothered me a little bit less just because I did find, let's say, the fireworks of the family dynamics had some dramatic heft. But it is very much a first film, and it felt like it. And so now we're going to see where he progresses to next in his second film, The Outsider, released in presented with Andres, a talented though untrained violinist who may want some sort of domestic and career stability, but whose alcoholism, irresponsibility, and general dysfunction leave his roles as husband, father, brother, and worker in a constant state of uncertainty. Mm. And whereas in Family Nest, a lot of the uncertainty was in how uh, Tar would go and both veer in the intensity and then alter the tone from being neorealistic on one part to being excessively sour and bitterly sarcastic on the other. Here, it is both more consistent, but of a singularly not rewarding tone. Here, I feel he makes the Hungarian version of the statement of Dean Wormer from Animal House. Son, (laughs) young, drunk, and stupid is no way to go through life. The movie. (laughs) A movie I I like to contrast this to is Mike Lee's film Naked, which features 
a protagonist even more unlikable, even more disgusting. That's a great comparison. But he is imbued with a personality that we can't turn away from. We become invested with this horrible person because of the way the actor, the director formulate this character. Now, in The Outsider, we are again dealing with non-actors. The fellow who who plays the lead, I'm, I'm guessing was chosen partially for his skills playing the violin uh but he's out acted by his violin <laughs> right and and of course the scenes where he's actually playing are kind of nice but what we're watching are people who not just him but pretty much most of the cast are just profoundly uninteresting in the way they go about their behavior our main characters barely has any definable traits and those traits are all basic facets on the uselessness scale. There is a moment early in the movie which you can use as a good guide to see if you want to pursue the outsider where he pays a visit to his girlfriend with which he has had a child and he brings along a gift for the newborn, which is a pacifier. The lady opens it and says, wait a minute, you just got him a used pacifier. What are you, what are you doing? Why did you get him a used one? What's the matter with you? If you are charitable and just think, okay, he bought it from a black market and he had no idea, then maybe you have enough sympathy to go through the rest of the movie, which basically involves him falling into a relationship and hanging with his friends and sort of getting a job and sort of doing it. And in a cinema verite style, talking with people and Mm -hmm. having other people tell them their weird philosophies of life in a kind of Errol Morris type manner. However, if you go who the hell is going to give a used pacifier? Then don't worry about this movie because he does not get any better. There is no (laughs) development with him past a guy who would give someone a used pacifier, give a baby a used pacifier. And at least there are consequences to that action, meaning that the woman he had the baby with wants nothing more to do with him. Mm -hmm. That's more than can be said for a lot of the rest of the relationships in this film. So he has a, a brother come on the scene yeah. who proceeds to sleep with his wife, which doesn't much change the relationships between the characters at all. It just kind of happens. Exactly. And I want to note that, that he has just two features that distinguish him from his younger brother, one of which is that he is one of the worst dancers that has ever been shown on a screen. And he somehow is an individual who managed to have both a beard and a mustache at the same time. Usually your mustache kind of matches with the beard, but not with this dude. (laughs) Right. Now, there are some things at the edges of the film 
that I, I kind of like. Uh, you mentioned some of the uh, co-workers uh, going on and on about things. So we, do, right. get, we do get a scene like that. But then I, I was uh, amused later in the film to see him fronting a rock band, yes. belting out House of the Rising Sun. Yes, <laughs> exactly right. So is there any real thing of value to look at this guy as he goes and has these conversations and has and fails at like every life mission that uh, life has to offer for him? There is one where I think Tar starts to explore here, which will be made manifest in later films, and that is music. It starts off with him playing this lovely piece for his job at a mental asylum. And time and time again, what little happiness and comfort come from people comes from the music that they play or the songs that they uh, sing for each other and for an audience. Good point. And And that really ties in with two of my other favorite scenes of the film. One uh, where the music literally drowns out the plot. He's taken uh, a job as a disco DJ at a point in which him and his wife are having even worse domestic issues than normal. They have this confrontation while he's spinning the records, but he could tell he's very distracted between the argument he's having with his wife and the music that he's playing. And this part of the film is actually shot in a really interesting way of using locations to obscure certain parts of the characters and to frame them in interesting ways. And then, definitely exploring on that in that scene, yes. Right. And then at the end, uh, which is not going to be really plot related, but the very end of the movie, it takes place in a restaurant and uh, our main characters leave, but we don't. We stay with some secondary characters as uh, one of the uh, pontificating fellows from earlier in the movie decides he wants the... Um, the restaurant uh, band to play uh, one of his uh, favorite pieces, Franz Litz's uh, Hungarian Rhapsody. And he is very much encouraging them to play it with feeling, and, and they do play it. And, and, and as the end credits roll, we watch this uh, small orchestra really tackle this piece. And even though it might not seem directly related to the plot, this musical sequence that ends the film comments on it because it's showing that despite what we've been watching, the um, dysfunction, the, the misery, these characters who can't in any way get it together, there's something raising the spirits. There's something that that, that even the, this main character is going to find a value, and that's music. That's my favorite scene in The Outsider. I'm actually surprised I have one. <laughs> <laughs> and part of it is because it is point zero of Bellatar's first moment of pure contemplative cinema. Because while the music's going on, the character who 
made the request. He is incredibly uplifted, but he also brings this sense of enthusiasm out to a table of people having a business meeting uh, who are not having it. They want to continue with their meeting. And then he's gathering at this other table and this other table and, and whipping up a fervor. And as the band is playing, sometimes the band, it's sometimes while the camera is remaining mostly still, it's focused on the band. But then this enthusiast keeps entering the frame, leaving the frame. And it sketches in this little micro world of this restaurant and these different parts of society and these different groups all getting this distinct effect through the music. So that is a kind of a moment that I think is quintessential contemplative cinema it's uh, shows one of the cool things that can do with the hungarian rhapsody which is a wonderful musical piece and it's also really great because the main character isn't in it <laughs> <laughs> All right, so before we go uh, full contemplative, we do have another example of Tar's forays into realism coming next. Right, that film is Prefab People from 1982. This film opens with a husband leaving his wife and children, but as the film progresses, we see in intimate detail the life of the couple, including happy but often tense moments that may result in screaming matches. <laughs> but they reveal how differently each member of the couple see their relationship as it relates to their work and their family needs. There are some echoes of family nest here, but it's uh, the professionalism of the production is raised a bit. There's a bit more of a budget. They're using real actors, but the depiction of domestic strife is just as intense. And here's the thing about, I think about both these films is that they almost do their job too well in how they <laughs> depict, especially in this case where you basically have a bickering married couple fighting all the time. Now we've all been there. We've all seen on uh, the bus or even in our own families, a couple who is, terrible for each other can't stop fighting and just drives everyone crazy and this is almost too close to the real life version of that because <laughs> even though it's it's a testament to the quality of the artists here that they're able to, to bring this across it's also kind of an annoying thing to to witness <laughs> i'm very much with you on the idea that here Tar both makes it the most honest of these depictions. There's very little of the kind of exploitative miserabilism that I found with his earlier two movies in showing this couple, each of whom, unlike the main character from The Outsider, having a very distinct personality and making us very intimately, in many senses of the words, clear how horrifically wrong these two are uh, made for each other. The female part of the couple has this 
incredibly incessant need to make sure that no particular part of her family's life is out of her purview. (laughs) And the guy, by contrast, is a very easygoing guy, but is temperamentally very much not used to uh, the things that her wife so absolutely desperately wants from the relationship. He's also kind of a bit of a schmuck. He looks kind of like Jake Gyllenhaal if he was playing um, Meathead from All in the Family. (laughs) (laughs) And he's kind of has this hapless vibe in a lot of places. And in two or three occasions, he's pretty oblivious, but that fits his character. In this film, you actually see a little bit of an advancement on the kind of skills that would bear so much reward in his later work. He does these long takes once again, but whereas in previous, they were in this Cassavetes thing where the camera's whipping back from one person to another and almost going up to a person's nostril in one side and then just focusing on the top part of another person's face on another, here, there's a sense of deliberation in many of these shots. The camera is held steady for long periods and then slowly moves to the left or right. But the movements go as they show this claustrophobic area where the couple lives. You see more and more things get revealed. There's a really interesting moment halfway through when in the middle of an argument, the camera just moves over, then you suddenly realize that they have two children Mm -hmm. instead of one. (laughs) Tar seems to enjoy uh, withholding bits of information like that. We do see the husband leave more than once and then cut back into an entirely different domestic situation. So we have to infer what the result of all that was. Yes, he does some interesting experimentation on that score. The husband leaves at one point with no explanation whatsoever. Then you cut back to the couple having a relatively much more positive moment, though it doesn't end up that way. (laughs) And then later, you see almost exactly the same thing happen again, although it's filmed slightly differently. And it puts you as a viewer in a weird place where you're where you you appreciate the Groundhog Day nature of their toxic relationship, that this is kind of a power play that has happened over and over and over again. Yes, and there is one sequence that kind of separates itself from all this, and you were talking with regards to The Outsider about the role uh, music plays. Yes. The the couple here find themselves at a at a dance uh, with, with lounge singers who at one point uh, goes into the audience to uh, bring people there up to dance with them. Right. And it's, again, a move towards being contemplative because without dialogue to explain what the, the couple is feeling about this, we could see varying levels of frustration and or enthusiasm for this social setting yes. that gives us a, a, a different view of them. That That's right. 
it gets contemplative very much at that point because their reactions are contrasted by all the other couples, some of whom dance, some of who don't, some who proposition others to mm-hmm. uh, with more or less success to dance. And each one of them have a different a different approach on that i can tell you that when i saw that scene my um uh contrivant spider sense was tingling it's like <laughs> oh no you're gonna proposition the the guy from this relationship and it's gonna lead to a massive screaming match uh, super family nest style but that's actually not what happens and this is showing an increased kind of restraint like an emphasis on like just hey no wait just observe let's watch mm-hmm. let's take in not just this couple but the other people in this um environment true and that brings us to kind of the title of the movie which i thought was somewhat odd so because i didn't know what the term uh prefab meant what it is is it's short for prefabrication which is a term used in uh manufacturing it's basically uh, when a section of a building or a structure uh, is built at, at a factory. They're built separately so that they can be rapidly assembled uh, at the final destination building site. Which, now how does that tie in to this movie? The last thing we see is there has been some kind of promotion they they're a little financially better off uh, at the end of the film and we get a, a long take of them on the back of a truck uh with their uh, refrigerator on the way to their new home and that that's where we end it so what is tar trying to say with this ending which for me attaches to the title of the film mm-hmm. which which is that what we have seen was this couple in their initial state the and, raw and materials the raw, in their relationship right the raw material we're seeing the the sausage being made mm. if, if you were if you will and now what's insinuated and and I think this is a pretty cynical message that, that that I'm I'm not sure I can be on board with, is that the infusion of some level of success, some level of security and money, means that only then are they going to be fulfilling their roles as you know husband, wife, and parents. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I'm I'm with you on that. It, the ending is both promising and dispiriting at the same time maybe in that way it gets uh, us more used to the kind of sensibility and outlook that that uh, uh bellatar has or an aspect of it because on the one hand yes it is incredibly cynical by basically treating these two people who don't who are sitting in the back of the truck they're not reacting they're not even looking around themselves they are just another piece of two pieces of furniture in this society, and they're going to be inserted into a place where they'll be useful or discarded. But the need to care about them as human beings is in this scene utterly dismissed. And it's actually not helped that it's an extended take where it appears oftentimes that the truck carrying them is moving around in circles <laughs> <laughs> to just put a real extra, you know, hamster wheel rat race <laughs> spin on the whole right. thing. However, 
the way the shots compose and the restraint by just how you're going to hold this image and just by varying different parts as the backgrounds move behind them, this is showing that Tar is a teaming more and more of a control of like, what can we do on the image and what can we do on the image that we can hold still? What is what we can add by not adding in conventional details or conventional plot elements or story elements. He's exploring what it means on the various basic ingredients of what makes a film. Right. So before he explores those other aspects of filmmaking, he's uh, going to have a quick aside on uh, Hungarian television and release a version of Macbeth, which is notable for a particular reason in that the entire very edited down version of the play is done in two takes. There's a prologue, cut, and the entire rest of of the play is one take with the camera basically following the cast around from room to room as the, the play unfolds. It's a very interesting experiment I found. Where, because you have to, like you said, you have to take a, even in its edited form, you have to take a whole bunch of different elements, which includes the murder and two battle sequences and uh, uh, several soliloquies by various characters. All have to be somehow maintained over, I believe, an hour running length after the prologue in this single take. Right. And as we've discussed in, in previous podcasts, I'm a huge fan of the Scottish play. So I might have be, be being a little more critical here than warranted, but I was so distracted by this the, the camera trickery of the one take that I was taken out of of the play so i didn't feel it 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 really worked that well as a production of macbeth it was very on the cheap looking somewhat like those early 80s uh bbc shakespeare productions but what, what it does do is move us a step towards the formalism that bellatar is going to embrace in his next film 1985's Almanac of Fall. Mint hosszú coffos barna lány, jó édesanyám, faggattam én. Leszek-e boldog, leszek-e szép, s ő felelt könnyedén. Légy szerény, mint én, légy elégedett szívem, ha jövőt nem sejthetem. Tar returns to dysfunction and claustrophobia. Heidi is an older woman of wealth who lives in close quarters with her son, her nurse, her nurse's lover, and an older tenant. Ulterior motives and betrayal is the order of the day, as each character does psychological and sometimes physical battle to secure their status and standing in the household. This film is one of a film's second film and final film to be in color. But what an amazing approach 
to color that it has. It is not even attempting to be realistic, but rather each individual character in this particular world seems to have their own color that glows right at them at different times. But the, the film mostly consists of two people in this uh, collection of five and how they talk to each other in a conversation between each other. And each member of that conversation is lit in a different bright hue, sometimes bright gold or very dark crimson or purple. The way it's illuminated and the way the light changes as they get closer to each other physically changes very, very dramatically. Yeah, this is the ultimate transitional film for Tar because after this, we're going to see him using black and white in magical ways. And when he used color before in The Outsider, it was kind of this faded out uh, version of it. But like you say, here it's unforgettable. And even though content-wise he's still dealing with uh, domestic uh, drama, it couldn't look any more different. If, If anything, it resembles the appearance of some of Ingmar Bergman's uh, chamber pieces like uh, Autumn Sonata or Cries and Whispers. And in the way melodrama is depicted is reminiscent of uh, Rainer Werner Fassbender and some of uh, the way he used color as well. Oh, that's a really fascinating comparison. And yeah, uh, Fassbender was very much had a, um, a concern of these intense dramas in these cl- uh, claustrophobic places, often in one big apartment, which is the case here. But e- here, not only in the color scheme, Tar is also using interesting things with the geometry of this apartment, which different rooms are in different dilapidated shapes. But there starts to become this eerie sort of beauty or a sense of like, um, a kind of a lost ethereal sense in some cases as how he's able to get the curtains and billowing with, with wind effects or the various scattered paint chips are just arrayed. The various textures that you see of the walls behind the different characters just feel like they have a kind of match mm-hmm. to the emotions that they express at each other, which is also a super cool call that you did on the Bergman side. I have not heard, heard, seen enough Bergman to gauge his earlier works, but I see a sort of seven seal-like quality where the character, where the characters in his earlier movies were exploring more realistic concerns like finding an apartment or getting a job or so on. While some of that is here, people are a lot more explicit upon the basic value of their lives and the meaning that they impart on their lives or where their lives have gone that they want to express to others, of which I would also want to add that the quality of the acting has increased all the way through these films, early films of Tar, and there's two or three of these performances are very, very effective in how these people express the suffering and the exploration of the meaning of their lives over this course of this movie. Right, and he doesn't just leave realism 
a little bit. He goes straight into all-out expressionism with the way that this film looks, and uh, probably no more than a scene that that's just audacious. I mean, it takes you out of the movie, but it's still <laughs> kind of amazing in these uh, two characters are actually having a, a physical fight and one's got the other one uh, wrestled to the ground. And then we, we cut to a shot from below the floor, which is now basically a, a, a transparent pane of glass. And we're we're looking at this uh, these two characters now from below in the strangest of angles yes they're suspended in space with Mm -hmm. the ceiling and walls of the apartment uh, around them being visible but their struggles are like in the middle of this kind of netherworld (laughs) where they're just their their conflict between each other takes hold and as a third party tries to um uh, break up the action their approach is also like seems in suspended in a similar way as a formal device, you're, yeah, you're totally right. It yanks you completely out of what was uh, this drama. But it's also a showcase for what he's exploring because he's trying to think outside of conventional filmmaking. Mm-hmm. What is the shot that is not the one that's expected? And what's a unique way of depicting these things? I don't even think there is a Fastbinder film, for example, that uses color in such a porous emotionally, almost emotionally vivid kind of way. I mean, a closest approximation that I would, could comes to mind for me would be the greatest films of Italian horror director Dario Argento would do, most particularly in Suspiria, and just how the color just almost seems to leap at you. But here it's tied in on this drama in this really interesting way, and both in how he uses the color, how he uses the camera to glide around in this environment and even extraneous touches like watching a fight from below. Mm -hmm. He is looking at how to show things on film in a new way. For me, there's a kind of good news, bad news aspect to Almanac of Fall because we are definitely dealing with a higher level of filmmaking and, and, Everything we're seeing is so striking, but I was still kept from being completely involved in the story of the film by the the inability, I think, to develop characters that were either worth investing in or just weren't absolutely horrible. (laughs) And uh, I I think that is, is both kind of the interesting thing and and the detriment of of the film is you're you're basically in close quarters with these characters who are just all after this old woman's money and right. trying to figure out ways to get it but they're not so well drawn out as individuals that we really are invested in who ends up getting on top of these with these conflicts right what we're seeing is these kind of venal, wormy people yes. uh, who are, are grubbing at everything they can get. Right. And that, I think, is something that, for good and ill, does also pervade in Tar's subsequent work. Because it seems to me 
that the techniques that he does here, while they can be thrilling on a formal way of like, wow, like you've never seen a film like Almanac of Fall. But at the same time, I feel this is also a transition point where he, whereas he was bitterly cynical or may have been exploitative, even in his earlier films, here he seems to be attaining this kind of sense of Kubrickian distance to people Mm -hmm. in the sense that their struggles are not something that we are meant to emphatically completely relate to, but we're meant to look at them from a distance and look at their struggle from this kind of wider, maybe even metaphysical, you know, perspective. You see what I'm saying? Yes, although I think the metaphysical aspect is going to be so much more profound in future films that yes. he, he's not quite there yet. Right. But one thing that's fascinating uh, about this film is the way it ends. So because it ends unexpectedly, I do want to give a, a spoiler warning mm-hmm. on this. We're going to talk about the last scene, which is basically the uh, the older man who's a, a teacher uh, has uh, been caught stealing and uh, is arrested and removed from the household. And this is part of a uh, series of crosses and double crosses between all the characters. Right. Now, with the removal of this one character, the remaining characters all now find what appears to be some kind of ability to uh, form a truce with each other as we see them dance to a Hungarian version of Que Sera Sera. The implication is that now it's a happy household. Mm. One of the things I most disliked off of this first film was how it used music in a manner that was just real cruel, as people are in tears relating how awful their life is. The goofy carnival music, which manifested earlier, just showed up once again. Here, it is a very... I do not like that note on it, because I find it unpleasant in a similar reason. However, it is modulated, because it is que sera sera, whatever will be will be. And it's also that the characters, by dancing, they show that First off, that there is a level of acceptance of their fate, however horrible and awful it may look, but also that through music or through dancing, it's a kind of way, as the old standard says, let's just taste the music and dance. And hmm. so that's a, you know what? That's a real interesting contrast to how um, John Ford does with dancing in our previous podcast. Because Ford uses dancing as one of these basic ways that people can go and just connect with each other. And what we're seeing here is the, I guess, the Hungarian existential Mm -hmm. equivalent of it. And this is something which I think Tar is going to make very manifest one very close film from now. I think we may have different interpretations of the ending, which makes a lot of sense because... Tar leaves a lot of room for interpretation. What struck me was more the idea of why this piece can only be achieved with the removal of one character, Ah. where that is the one thing that's different. If he's the most outsider of the characters 
and he's removed from the situation that the rest of the characters can somehow coalesce despite their differences. Do you realize that what you just did was finally make something interesting about the outsider? Oh, what's that? Because that is exactly what happens at the end of The Outsider. Ah. By the main character, by leaving the scene, <laughs> suddenly then you're able to look at these different parts of society and have the music. Like the same thing happens. It's a theme. It's a <laughs> fascinating connection to a movie that I was <laughs> did not expect to find any fascination for. And yet there you have it. That is a really great way of approaching uh, Almanac of Falls ending. It's something that I actually had not even thought about. But that, that it could tie into The Outsider and perhaps even some other films is, is really great that it came up. And as we do approach these other films, we're finally at the point in Bellatar's career where he introduces to us the signature style, the reason we're here. He is about to change and revolutionize everything. But before we get to that, I do want to mention some of his important collaborators because Tar in particular, especially moving forward, is going to rely on some very key collaborators, one of whom he is married to. His editor and uh, later on in his career co-director uh, is his wife, Agnes Heronitsky. I don't know that we'll ever know truly the extent of what she contributed because she is his artistic partner in every way. So much of what we're crediting Tar with, we could also give her credit as well. It's... Very interesting to see, to consider her collaborative effort, seeing as how she started as an editor in Tar movies, um, a style of filmmaking that became increasingly known for how little editing there is. <laughs> right. And we've been talking a lot about music, and starting with Almanac of Fall, his composer, Mihaly Vig, uh, will work with him on all his films, and music will continue to play a vital role and uh, he'll even be brought on as an actor uh, in one of his uh, future films right but starting with his next film damnation he's going to bring on a collaborator that it, it can't be a coincidence that his films change at this point and that's going to be a hungarian novelist named laszlo krasnohorke who will be involved in the writing of every film Tar does from this point forward. And as we look at uh, the change in style and its consistency from this point forward, it seems like his involvement helped foster this creativity. Oh, for sure. I can definitely, we can definitely see this from the writing angle because his films from Damnation onwards have a very particular point of view. It's specific and consistent across all of those works. And I have to think that this, the influence of, a, of this novelist, who I want to say Satan Tango was based on his own novel, right. is 
a very important aspect of that. And this kind of collaboration, this common collaboration between uh, Tar and his wife, the composer and the writer, harkens back to a very interesting facet from a movie a couple years back called Pollock about the relationship between Jackson Pollock and his wife, Lee Krasner, a noted artist in her own right, but who saw something special or an aspect of Pollock's work and was able to provide it like a focus and attention that makes a really interesting point on how the film is called Pollock, not Jackson Pollock. Mm -hmm. It's just that one component of Pollock, the person, the icon, and in fact, the artist. (laughs) The artist might not just be a person, but it may be a collective, which is kind of ironic in a, in a Hungarian social right, context. Because he, <laughs> right? he started out in this uh, with the Budapest group uh, exactly in, a, in a collective. Right. Exactly right. But so let's, <laughs> maybe this is about tar. Like when you have a great musical group and you can't separate one musician from another or the sound will be irrevocably different, maybe this union combined to make a singular style and theme that would have not happened had these four units not come together. Well, let's see what this group unleashes upon us. In 1988, Tarr finally introduces his signature style with Damnation, the story of Carrer, whose downfall begins when he's offered a smuggling job by the local bartender. He sees not just the opportunity for some easy cash, but also a chance to seduce a married singer by sending her husband away on the job. Yeah, the film is called Damnation or... As I said, when I first saw the opening scene, Damnation, (laughs) it starts on just such a perfect announcement of this kind of style that later became to be defined by Bellatar's work. As you watch these bins carrying ore move on this um, ski lift like conveyor belt on this continually with this continually chugging noise in the background. You're left focused on it for for a long amount of time until the camera moves back, back, and back enough so you realize this is actually being filmed from inside a house, and then the person, the back of a person's head, enters the frame as he is observing this. The lines of the ski lift and the bins rhythmically moving interact with the different squares of the window pane and to the guy's figure who you only see the outline of his head in shadow. Just make such a pronounced, authoritative image of a guy in the midst of just a never-ending chug through the drudgery of his life. 
Yeah, it, it's a we're not in Kansas anymore moment. Yeah. Because we can describe a scene like that, but what what's harder to describe is the beauty of the shot itself and how as we start talking about Tar's long takes, they are anything but boring because his framing, his cinematography, everything he brings to these takes as a filmmaker makes them luscious to look at just on a visual level. It starts here and and it just doesn't end. So uh, we're going to start talking a little bit about how many takes are in these films. Uh, In this particular film, it's 160 minutes long and there are only 55 takes in it. (laughs) 55 cuts. Right. That's known as like the average three minutes of your Transformers movie (laughs) in terms of cuts (laughs) is in the whole movie. There are minutes focused at a single shot at a time that he uses to a stunning effect. We brought up earlier about how Tarkovsky was saying how you go and sculpt in time. Mm -hmm. But he isn't just using time as just some component where you're just absorbing a particular image. His camera that he was practicing through his earlier films it becomes a grand matter of movement, but not continuous movement, of deliberate, but it is varying through the course of a five-minute sequence or a seven-minute sequence. And here, it's almost always continuously revealing things or showing people and their situations in a new perspective. He's also bringing in such a vivid eye for atmosphere. Nobody since Akira Kurosawa has used weather to such an effect that Tar does. And this uh, damnation is his rain movie. The subject of the story of damnation could be called film noir, but what this is... I believe, is the ultimate film deluge. <laughs> what Noir does with pure darkness, Tar does a masterclass in how you use an existential crisis from how it rains all the damn time. <laughs> so many times characters are obscured by sheets of rain or are or, or found like left aside from buildings that are held in a torrential downpour. Or in them, like there's a, a dance scene. There's a number of uh, dance scenes in the film. And in one of them, we see this uh, man doing his dance outside in the rain. Yeah. We also see... The darkest da- take on singing in the rain until <laughs> sets clockwork or Right. <laughs> we also see dogs everywhere. They become a motif. These kind of mangy mutts wandering throughout the rain and the mud, uh, looking uh, none yeah. too pleased. But I'm glad you mentioned film noir, because if you just look at what's going on plot-wise... There are, for the first time in Tar, some echoes of more conventional storytelling. We do have a love triangle. You could almost this, say, uh, like mm-hmm. a femme fatale, in right down to the fact of her torch singer position, right? Right, right. So what we have is is now the subversions of some tropes of storytelling. 
we talked earlier about how contemplative films emphasize mood over story. And I think this is a really good example of this. Story-wise, we're not really breaking new ground. This plot about the smuggling job and how uh, our protagonist uses it to rekindle an affair is something that could be Hollywood. But it's not shown that way. Uh, Because this is done in Tar's style... Instead of building suspense, we're building character. We're looking at Carrer and his loneliness and his desperation and how he will grab uh, at anything to bring this woman back into his life and, and, and find some happiness in these dreary surroundings. Mm-hmm. There's a movie I'd want to go compare this to that traffics in it a little bit, and that is um, the film The Last Picture Show, something also like of a lost, smaller community that has find its like purpose is has gone has gone missing, and and the characters in that place have different kinds of desperation, lives of quiet desperation in here, but Tar imbues this with what I can say is nothing less than a geyser of this pure cinema feeling. How our um, co-hosts on the Now Playing Network have a great podcast called Pure Cinema, and the ideal of that, at least as I see it, is how when the components of a film by themselves and apart from the story can give this feeling... And this is, Damnation is a sustained blast of that sense of existential loneliness that you brought in. So many of these details from just the ramshackle ways uh, items are arranged on a desk as it swoops in over um, uh, the main character waking up to how there's different perspectives, but there's always the presence of these conveyor belts are right down to the epic sound design of the continual chug. And even when the character, main character is shaving, the thunk <laughs> as he whips the shaving cream off of his razor is just also like another nail in his kind of coffin of his world. <laughs> well, well, let me go into a scene that's kind of an, kind of an example of that. Mm. And it's a scene that doesn't on its surface appear to relate much to anything, but it has such a pure cinema power to it that I was blown away. You basically start off with what looks like an abstracted view of a wall that's slowly getting wetter as the rain is dripping down. But we're in such close-up on this wall that it's not yet apparent what we're looking at. And then... Tar begins this long pan over some very effective music in which we get to these the windows of, of the tavern and everybody in town seems to be in this tavern and looking out the window, looking at us, oh, looking, nice. looking uh, at what I'm, I'm still not entirely sure of, but we go from window to window as the music plays, as we watch these faces looking out 
of, of the building that they're in. The building they're generally in for uh, drinking and, and dancing, but they're being very still. It, it's just things, isolated moments like that that are that are so magical and effective. Hmm. And what we brought in a little earlier, which is about how it seems that like Tar puts like a Kubrickian kind of remove from things and it seems it's like almost made explicit from the first shot of damnation as what we think is something we're seeing as just our usual audience observation point becomes it's clear it's the perspective of the person as his head enters the frame and this happens also in continually in in damnation as something we think is from our view is made clear it's from someone is from someone's view like there was an amazing scene where our main character is consummating the affair with this lady and as they're engaged in lovemaking on the bed the camera is slowly panning around and you see the the various details as it slowly pans on dresser drawers mm-hmm. and chairs and tables about the very details that had defined this woman's character's life and it moves over to a mirror where you see the lovemaking from a totally different perspective and it almost appears that like she's looking in the mirror. So our sense gets shifted in this really wonderfully deliberate way by Bellatar. And I think that's notable because I think the main character's tragic flaw, one of them, is in fact that he has this level of self-reflection in that he's his damnation comes from that he's just aware about how ineffective he is or how unable to deal with the world uh, he, he can do. Yeah, and this is conveyed so well by the actor playing a career, Miklos B. Shakeli, who will turn up uh, again and again in tar films and has these amazing uh, haunted eyes. He brings a real different flavor to the noir plot, so to speak, because he's not your standard. He's not a tough guy. He's somebody, as you mentioned, who is so well aware of his flaws so he's always putting himself in this vulnerable position so that when yes. when things do go wrong for him you could tell through through his performance beyond anything else he is truly damned especially in his own eyes yeah that's very well put and this movie also i think continues the start of what he was doing in the writing side on almanac of fall in that characters are now not talking about realistic things so much as being more and more honest in a direct manner with their crises of conscience with their search for meaning, with their search for feeling and connection with others. And here, I think that collaboration between these four horsemen that we described comes forth to complete fruition because these direct 
feelings the characters say are matched by the great imagery that Tar and Company presents and by the great movement and stillness that his camera delivers. And in fact, I would go so far as to say that Damnation is the best gateway Tar. (laughs) If you want to see what Tar is all about, he's obviously more famous for other movies, but I think if you want to see what he's all about, this is the movie to do it, not just because it's a noir-based story, and so people can relate on that kind of on that story in one of a more conventional way than his other films but also because so much of the dialogue seems to illuminate not just damnation but his other films especially his subsequent films and there's a particular moment where our main character is just trying to tell his would-be lover why he is so dedicated to pursuing her, which I think is actually the key thing for Tar. He says, when I see you, I feel you're the person standing on the entrance to a tunnel, a tunnel that leads to a world, a world of warmth, a world of light, but a world that I don't know. And I think, I may never understand. This, I think, is something which is one of the most uplifting and remarkable things that I think Tar does, starting with Damnation onwards. It's the kind of insight into human nature that I think Tar was hoping he would get with realism, but that format didn't bring him to these heights. With this style he's ad- adopted starting here, he reaches them. And I'm really glad that you cited this as, as a great uh, gateway to start with Tar, mm-hmm. because I'm pretty sure that his next film would not be the one to start with at all. <laughs> <laughs> right, because once you start on Satan Tango, you have a ways to go before you reach the end. Locking in at more than seven hours, it follows various intertwining stories of the citizens of an isolated and soon-to-be-closed collective farm who are expecting significant payments upon their departure. But they must also contend with the disruption of returning co-workers that the residents had thought were dead. Well, we have to start with the elephant in the room here. Uh, in that this is a, a film that is over seven hours. That's a significant fact. You can't just brush that away and say, hey, I'm going to sit down and watch Satan Tango. I did enjoy the film, and I think it is worth the time to watch, but it takes a particular attitude. 
for me, that attitude was to say, I'm going to accept that this is the pacing of the film, that we're going to be here for a very long time, that we know we're in the hands of somebody who is a master filmmaker and who is not going to waste those seven hours, that there is going to be meaning. And being comfortable with that, you kind of just have to sit back and enjoy the ride, so to speak, because watching a seven-hour film is not like watching a regular film. It's a different experience. So how did you feel uh, adjusting to that experience? Roger Ebert had a really great line about that topic, which was, no great movie is too long, and no bad movie can end quickly enough. (laughs) Right. But I wonder, when I see films that start pushing past like the three or four hour movie length uh, that Hollywood conventional epics have been known to reach. What does it mean for a film to have seven hours? Well, what does it mean to go and have some, uh, to go watching it knowing that like a third of a day needs to go by before you reach its, its end. And by the way, this is different than, than, than episodic TV because those are parceled out into sections mm-hmm. and you can segment it. But when a film is that long, what does it mean after you reach your conventional two-hour to three-hour comfort zone of a film? Satan Tango I, is a weird position for me because I think it earns half of its running length. <laughs> it needs to be longer than a conventional movie because the situation the characters find themselves in and their levels of desperation, feeling they're in their last rope, and yet the level of dilapidation of the world they're in needs to be felt. And to have it felt, you have to have it be longer. You have to, in some way, feel that the wind and the rain and the ever-present spiders have like been that you've been long enough that maybe you there's spiders webs mm-hmm. collecting on your own arms much like they, they've collected on so many of the pieces of furniture in in this film but then also like he did to a bit in prefab people he also plays a little bit with perspective here so you see a massive sequence from one person's view and then you would then see it viewed from a co- another character who's very much of a rear window like observer mm-hmm. called in uh, dubbed the doctor and he himself later comes with an o- his own different perspective when he encounters a young girl and then when you see what happens from the young girl's side and what led her to that point it becomes very tra- it blends a hugely tragic tinge to those events yeah, the Doctor is my, my favorite character in the film. He, he's this uh, ornery, uh, old, uh, rotund man who is constantly breathing heavy and seems to be at the uh, verge of dropping dead at any <laughs> moment. And at one point, he actually does drop, but it turns out it's because he's just too drunk. Yeah. <laughs> But you know what you're saying about dealing with the length brings up, I think, a, a good point in, in that what these films do is immersion. 
even if it's on a subconscious level, by spending this much time in these environments, you get to know them so well that you can imagine yourself uh, a part of them. So, you know, when you begin the film with a 10 minute uh, sequence of cows wandering through this uh, dilapidated farm, it wouldn't necessarily work with another director just filming cows, but, <laughs> but, but there well, is, there the- is a, there is a, a hypnotism almost yes. that it, that it brings you into a way to get you into this world. Mm, exactly. Because it's not a matter of just simply seeing the cows move around from one side of the screen to the other. The camera is continually panning and you go through an entire sequence of buildings. So, uh, so through the beginning, you are starting to get a geography of the town. And then it actually also works in context with what happens with the denizens of the town Mm -hmm. who are both do leave over the course of the movie and behave like cattle over the course of the movie. (laughs) So while it seems incongruous, and by the way, Tar deserves credit, much in a weird way similar to the pacifier from The Outsider, you're watching Cows for 10 minutes. If that's not something you're if that that enchances you in any way, you know you can turn back. He is not deceiving you right. <laughs> in terms of <laughs> this is the rhythm that the movie is going to have. This is the level of deliberation. It is filmed like this and about these things all the way through. And if you're with the wavelength, then by all means go in and continue to it. As a cinema experience, I think it is do you need to see it all at once? I did see it all at once, and I did not feel that way. <laughs> and for this podcast, I saw it in three sections, roughly equivalent to the three DVDs it would take. And my impression is that you can watch comfortably a section of a movie length, and you'll be satisfied and curious as to what will happen next. Yeah, this is a debate among uh, cinephiles who enjoy these uh, super long films about whether to try to take it all in at one point or break them up. I myself feel very strongly that I react better if I break them up into pieces. There's just no way that seven hours straight of anything is going to work for me. So Mm. I've heard others say that, no, it's needed in order to truly immerse, but it actually becomes so distracting for me just sitting still that long Mm -hmm. that I prefer it the other way. There's a few more interesting, many interesting aspects of this film, one of which uh, I would never have garnered on my own, but it it has to do with the title and the structure of the film. Mm. And it's a pretty interesting insight into just how detailed Tar and company can get. And that's the idea that the film is structured like the dance, the tango. Mm. And the way it's described is that the film is divided into 12 chapters. They're not all consecutively moving forward in time. So six of the chapters move forward and then six then move backwards, which I'll have to take the Internet's word on this, uh, is the, uh, is the structure of the, of the tango dance. Mm. Now, 
Is that meaningful to me? No. Do I respect the hell that somebody thought so minutely to make that happen? Yeah. I can only be with you part of the way on that. Because I think that does the idea of the tango dance really manifest itself that much in Satan Tango? Not particularly. Not just because most tangos last shorter than seven and a half hours. But... Also because part of the tango is also the back and forth movement. And there's very little of that going on. Mm -hmm. It's a, a lot of that is more upon how these people at this collective are beset upon by three very ambiguous malefactors who definitely arrive in a satanic-like level through these two sustained sequences where we watch their backs as they walk down what appears to be a street that's four miles long <laughs> with garbage and dirt and grime blowing in front of them as if to herald their evil arrival. If you are not prepared to watch a seven-hour film, find this scene. This scene is amazing. It is, like, because it's yeah. pure malevolence. It's pure malevolence, off. it's pure mood, but it's also seems like it was would be impossible to shoot. <laughs> yes. As the garbage that's blowing along with this group is doing so in tandem. I mean, it, it, it looks so perfect, but it must have taken a hell of a lot of work to make right. Mm-hmm. Yes. Right. So much technical involvement to get that to pass along as it looks like they can walk clear across town with the sustained wind always blowing right. always moving these objects with them without the cutting for studio trickery exactly right and yet it just comes off as just this pure natural expression of the kind of danger or menace that these characters pose to the community going from one of its most famous scenes, I, I do feel the need to bring up the most infamous uh, part of the film, yeah. which is we, we, we got to talk about the cat, because yes. that is a extremely disturbing element. There's a, a, a young girl in the film with, with her cat, and she is made to feel increasingly powerless and abused, and uh, she takes her abuse out on her cat and uh, eventually poisons and kills it. Now, I'm still not entirely clear on the absolute truth of this because Bellatar claims that the cat was fined, the cat was drugged and woke up, and then um, he adopted it. But, wow, when you, when you watch this scene, it sure looks like animal cruelty. And I, I very much hope it's not, but it, it, it's hard to watch the scene w w without thinking that. It definitely could, but it's also a key scene in the movie. I think it's no mm -hmm. coincidence that it actually happens at the halfway point because it's so much about the struggles of every stratum of humanity to try and control or rail against their lack of control. Mm -hmm. The three people who arrive in this devilish, garbage-strewn wind, at times they're shown as being very bad actors, but at other times they're just more aware on the situation than the denizens of this community. 
they are not inaccurate in pointing out that they lack control over their lives and they lack the courage to face control of, of their lives. The example of the cat is the ultimate reduction on that because everyone on the totem pole is using abuse as just a measure to control the people who has less power over them. I think even the, the little girl says, hey, I can do what I want with you to the cat. Right. And this ties in with how the main malefactors causing this trouble in this community are they themselves being ordered by a, ca- by a captain. So the military and the upper structure of Hungarian society is also involved in pushing them Right. There, there's a definite political angle here because this is the first of Tar's films to be made after the fall of communism mm. when he would not have to contend with Hungarian censorship, even though he was working independently throughout and the non-commercial nature of his films probably gave him a little more leeway. By the time of Satan Tango, he's able to make his political points much more direct. Rarely more so than at a moment near the end where two bureaucrats are trying to type a report done by people about what the town denizens of the town are like, and they have to translate the awful ways these people are described in the in this bureaucratic language, such as one like a dirty slut who will go and sleep with anyone, says, well, she has uh, low morals and easy virtue. <laughs> It shows how the perhaps primal feelings that people are getting there at the lowest level, maybe the lowest feelings that they can afford, just bubble up to become like give the patina of civilization rather than actually be a civilization based on on principles. That's a good point. And then the end result being the death of the collective itself. Mm-hmm. And we, we haven't really talked about kind of the greed that motivates so many of the characters at the, the prospect of either earning or stealing the money uh, they, they, they feel is owed to them. And then they become such ripe marks yes. for both the government and, uh, and these con men to come in and take advantage of them. A- a- and that leads to just uh, a very poignant ending in which the town is empty yes and the doctor returns and sees that he's the only one left and and the last shot in the movie is just him slowly shuttering up his windows until we're, we're left in blackness yeah it's a really fascinating conclusion because this character has been in many ways sort of the ultimate observer and documentarian because he has piles and piles of notebooks that document the activities in the town, which is not just an interesting contrast within the reports that the bureaucrats have typed out, but then what does it mean that he hears a bell that starts off the movie? He finally visits what that is, and it's the literal definition of a sound told by an idiot, signifying <laughs> nothing. You don't know what that person ringing the bell is doing at all, and nor does this observer. He has nothing to write on there. 
but then that he decides he needs to go and shut the light out in this very drawn out procedure as light is snuffed out. And so all is left is a sustained blackness as he relates the events that happened in the very beginning, seven and a half hours earlier. And that brings us to the first Bellatar film either of us has seen, which is Workmeister Harmonies, which came out in the year 2000. is about innocent young Janos. He is one of the few inhabitants of a small Hungarian town not decaying into chaos. How a traveling circus with a whale carcass and a mysterious figure known as the Prince disrupt and destroy all order in the village is one of the many mysteries posed but not answered in this very enigmatic film. I don't know from your impressions... When you saw it, Brad, but I was lucky enough to see this in a theater from the mighty Facets Multimedia in Chicago, and Blown Away is not sufficient to describe how I felt by watching this epic, transcendent moment of pure cinema. I can't disagree, and, and I only saw it on dvd but the power was was still there and also the fact of it being not just my first bellatar film but pretty much an introduction into this entire genre we've been discussing it it opened that door i don't know if i had started somewhere else if it would have opened quite so adamantly uh for me but this is a very special film, it, it, even among Tar's work. It is unique, and uh, I know you were particularly enchanted by the way it opened, which uh, certainly sets the stage. Exactly right. The opening sequence is not only one of the greatest things that has ever been put on a movie screen, but as we're talking on this podcast it sort of comes to a realization and a key realization about the value of contemplative cinema itself. This is such an announcement on just the measure of scope of what film can do on the grandest scale and the smallest scale. From start of a close-up of embers of a roaring fire, you see as our like title character is hanging around at a bar with a bunch of shuffling locals and various states of drunkenness are uh, lounging around. And one of them says, Hey, Janos, 
tell us the story of the eclipse. And Janos uses this to say, well, here's how the eclipse happens. He takes one of the drunkards and puts him in the center and says, "This here's the sun. And the sun is emitting the rays to everyone. And to which the drunkard lift, dutifully lifts up his hands and wiggles his fingers. And he brings on another person, becomes the earth, who starts moving around the first drunkard. And another becomes the moon, rotating around the earth guy, rotating about it. They talk about a situation where an eclipse happens and to which the camera slowly moves up. Everyone stays in position in complete stillness as a halo bright light shines. And then after the eclipse is over and it descends, then the camera moves and it is swirling around with the with the drunk earth, with the drunk moon and the drunk sun emitting his sunlight fingers through all. In that moment, you get a sense of universal grandeur from the most basic and natural on human materials. And I think this touches on one of the most spiritual moments in, in movies as showing how do people with all their foibles can make something so transcendent and encompass such a vast concept but it also works in that the camera moves to make us a participant in this joyful experience and also is a value on contemplative stuff you look at all these guys perfectly ordinary people they do what they do and you can see something magnificent from it and something we've just never seen before yeah and that's the the magic here is when you see enough movies you kind of get into a pattern of of this is what we expect this is where it might go there is no way when you watch uh, workmeister harmonies to know where where this is going and uh that scene i agree is is a stunner of, of an opening and a, and another great use of of long take the next few really powerful moments for me involve the arrival of this uh, weird circus into town, which uh, actually, if it reminded me of anything, it's uh, the beginning of uh, Something Wicked This Way Comes. Oh, In nice. its uh, announcement of malevolence without really revealing it. So what we first see is a gigantic truck that something is clearly uh in and 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 it arrives so slowly that it's almost revealed like the first star destroyer in star wars <laughs> right in right. that you're like how big is this truck but it's more the time it's taking the camera to uh caress the borders of the truck announcing pay attention Exactly, and then then when we when we do get to uh, get a view of what's in there and and what the circus offers, it's so completely bizarre, because it's a whale carcass, but we don't see it in whole. We see it in part, uh, just as Janos does, as he has to go from uh, the back to the front to to observe this, and it's in in deep shadows, high contrast, uh, black and white photography and the result is something so alien and so mysterious that 
even if we know it's just a prop, the illusion is complete. This delivers on the sense that you see in the stories of H.P. Lovecraft of a feeling called the uncanny, you know, a feeling that there's a world beyond how we've associated things through society, through reason and logic, but it, that it is beyond and it just unnerves us. And that's a feeling that is both we as an audience feel throughout what happens in Workmeister Harmonies, but also is something that's feeling from the denizens of this town who are hearing vague rumors about the awful things that have happened to earlier towns that have been visited by this whale. It is such a powerfully incognitous image to have the parts of this whale. And, and I think you made a really good point to say it's important that you don't see it fully mm -hmm. that and there's a several stunning moments where janosh is looking with the whale's gigantic eye which is like almost the size of his head mm -hmm. and he makes a really great statement which is saying other people think it's a threat but he since he's a very innocent and kind person he says no i no this is just a remark on god's creativity what does it mean for him to make such vast and strange creatures is one of the many potent things mentioned in this. And somehow this connects to the concept of music. Not, not just the music that's featured in the movie, but uh, music itself, which uh, attaches to the title. Because Janos's uh, mentor, Georgie, is a, a pianist and uh, has a lot of uh, very intricate ideas about musicology and the ideas of a real-life theoretician named Andreas uh, Workmeister, of whom the, uh, the film is named after. What he is saying is that the musical scale is imperfect. Now, just as I couldn't really understand the intricacies of the tango dance in the our last discussion i'm not going to pretend to uh understand the true musical significance of what he's saying here but but the result is which that he wants to re um reimagine and 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 remake his own uh piano to perfect what he sees as the imperfections inherent in the musical scale which is an act of what? It's an act of revolution. Right. Great point. And the idea on social upheaval is very much on the mind of this film, but on an intrinsic level. That's what makes the fact that it's based off the Workmeister's scale so fascinating because music is something that people feel intrinsically. And the effect of the whale and the traveling circus is it feels intrinsically wrong. Especially once uh, the other element of the circus is revealed, the character known as the prince, who we only see in shadow, but through the result of his actions, uh, we could tell is uh, some sort of um, charismatic and or threatening demagogue who uh, has the ability to throw this town into chaos as he has 
in previous towns. And again, we talked about seeing the whale only in parts. The prince we never see, but we do see the results of his handiwork. Yeah, how that perspective is amazingly rendered because it's also so transient. Like you said, he's only in shadow, but he speaks a different language that's translated. Mm -hmm. And in fact, in a way where the circus proprietor is saying, but what he's saying is nonsense, to which his translator says, well, you're afraid, but the other people, they'll understand him. So the uncanny manifests itself. There is some sort of current between this whale and this prince and this imposition in this town that leads people to destroy and to gather for these horrible ends of a dissolution. Mm-hmm. And where does that come from? And how is that at odds with just the society that's set up there? is brought to great feeling in this film. So much visual power is developed just from the increasing numbers of increasingly scruffier people who are just milling around the town square on the random fires that are are happening on the, on the clickety clack of like a newspaper being produced as, as people ironically mentioned gossip about what happened on earlier towns. It's contemplative cinema's own version of suspense because (laughs) you can tell a bomb is ticking, but it's ticking so slowly in this film that you get a chance to consider the real implications of it. Yes, very well put. When it goes off, it leads to another of the most uh, stunning sequences. that's right. In film. When violence is almost about to erupt, the impending doom is represented by this sustained sequence of an ever-marching, never-ending mob of figures. Never has darkness been doing so much to like displace the idea of, of individuals and then make them part of this mass, like a blob-like cancerous growth pouring down this street with the rhythms of their footsteps totally moving, continually moving, just like the, the, the ultimate telltale heart of this town leading to its own doom. And the camera swoops in to focus on this person and that person, but then pulls back and it amasses to being a a blob of darkness again. And it does this over and over. A standard film would rely on cutting to show us the actions of this mob. And it would unfold in an expected way once we, we, you know, we understand the concept that there's going to be a mob riot. What makes this riot something to behold is that it is done in one shot. And there is a lot of jaw-dropping camera work that allows Tar to capture these images in this particular way. That's, that's so right. When the riot breaks out, for a first, a cinema miracle, I, I swear to you, a cinema miracle happens because 
he fuses two total different genres of filmmaking at once. Like we had said earlier on his earlier films of doing this Cassavetti style, one of the things that made the Cassavetti style so jittery was how characters would move their head in and out of a frame. When, whenever a character moves in and out of a frame, it's jarring for us to watch because like, wait, where, where's the person coming from? And it does that kind of tension but from a contemplative perspective, the camera movement cannot be more sedate, more deliberate, not giving you as an audience member anything to focus the details. But there's people always running in and out mm-hmm. to crash on things. And the camera will slowly look on this room and that one that's barely lit, one that's brightly lit. And you see some random violence and you barely have a moment to interpret it before it glides in to see on something else. The result is to give us a, a sculpting in time version of, to me, a Hieronymus Bosch painting of madness and destruction, desolation, and humanity at its, at its worst. A whole society behaving like the little girl in Satan Tango on hurting people at this hospital. Right, because that's what we're witnessing is uh, people being randomly beaten and killed in a hospital, uh, and then a moment happens when, and this this has all been going on uh, with only the ambient sound, and then uh, a curtain, a shower curtain is drawn, and we see a naked elderly man cowering in fear. And at that point, the music comes in. Yes. And that moment of the music announcing that something has changed and the uncomfortableness of seeing this old man in such a vulnerable position basically stops the riot in its track. Not an action that happens, but a feeling that occurs through the will of the filmmaker as much as anything that's going on in the plot. It shows a magnificence in our ability to recognize the most vulnerable part within ourselves. And it just comes on like as a total onrush of this feeling and sensation when the music comes in. And then it has one final trick because as the, the rioters have suddenly are shocked into becoming people again to be recognizing other people as people again and they slowly walk off in the hallway the camera curves and shows Janosch and we're focused on his face and it's a really powerful enigmatic moment because why is he there did he was he part of the riot was he just observing and what does he feel about what he has witnessed well Janos is really the ultimate innocent in this film, he's played very wide-eyed by a, a German actor named uh, Lars Rudolph, who is excellent. Because it's through Janosch's eyes that we see all this unfolding, and he himself is most closely connected to a character who has noted the imperfections of the musical scale which symbolically can be correlated to the dissolution of uh, civility and civilization mm-hmm. that led to this, he becomes absolutely 
overwhelmed. His innocence is destroyed in an instant. Whereas we see the after effects of this riot that many people in the town have gotten back to normal. Uh, Janos himself ends up uh, in an insane asylum because it's it's all too much for him. Mm-hmm. The It's a way of just how society accommodates for what has happened through the increasing presence of the military, through a, a faceted extended part where a giant helicopter chases him and then yeah. just stands there hovering, more like now it's observing uh, Janosch, ironically like a bug, and it's more than he can take. In that case, it's very, very fascinating how his innocence renders him catatonic by what happens, and it's up to his mentor to finally observe the whale, because now the whale's out in the open, mm-hmm. and in yet another stunning shot, as you see the whale from the back, because what we're looking at is the remnants of the destruction that was caused, maybe, or was signified by the whale's arrival, and our the mentor comes in and, like Janos, looks at his eye, at the eye of the whale, and and the theme from the hospital comes in again. And as he leaves, as the mentor leaves the scene in our foreground, you just have the whale in a town square that's coming in with billowing smoke. There's an amazing Russian film called Leviathan, which its point is you can't fight City Hall, but it redefines what quote unquote City Hall means mm-hmm. to encompass everything. And it does it through its two-hour running time to show how deep that kind of level of misunderstood potential for destruction can be. It's all there in that one last sequence of Workmeister Harmonies. And it's very telling that he tells Janos that he's reverted his piano back to the uh, normal Great point. Perfect scale. That's right. It's another accommodation that he's had to do. Right. So what I love about this film is it's doing one of the really the hardest things that movies can do, which is to speak to us through symbolism. The musical scale, the whale, the prince, everything is representative. But it's representative of a very open way, one that doesn't lend us to saying, well, this equals that, and that equals this. Everyone brings their own experiences to this movie, and, and the movie is such an open experience that it can mean something different to every viewer. Mm-hmm. And the kind of directness that people had with their own uh, feelings and desires in his earlier films now become almost to a level of symbolism. But once again, the visuals, the cinematography, the presentation rises to the challenge. Every single one of the only 39 shots in this two-hour and 15-minute movie is suffused with meaning and intent. Every shadow, every camera movement means something, implies something, inspires something, and captivates for whichever 
ways that the plot is rendered abstract, the pure cinematic nature of this film is phenomenal. It is magnificent. And that leads to the question whether Tar can sustain that magnificence through his next film. which is The Man from London, released in 2007. In his tower overlooking the docks, rail yard signalman Malloan witnesses a murder and discovers a suitcase full of cash. As he struggles with the implication his newfound wealth might have on his family, a police inspector from London arrives after the money as well and will stop at nothing to recover it. After the highs that I found so amazingly high from Workmeister Harmonies, I found that The Man from London was a tremendous fall. (laughs) To me, it was like what Ebert said when he was talking about a certain director of a bad movie. Every other shot of the movie had the camera tilted at a 45-degree angle. And Ebert's review of the movie summed it up by saying, you know, this guy knows how to point the camera that way, but he doesn't know why you would do it. (laughs) And I find myself in the unfortunate position of looking at this man from London and seeing that that's what Tar is doing in his own style. Well... I'm going to disagree with you there, uh, but in no way do I want to try to compare this film to Workmeister Harmonies. It's not a movie at that level, but I do think it knows what it's doing. What it is guilty of is really kind of being a less pure version of what Tar generally does, and that's because uh, alone in his filmography, in addition to Laszlo Krasnohorgai's writing. This is uh, his only film based on an existing novel uh, by another author, a French novel put out in 1934 by Georges Simenon. A little bit like Damnation, but more so, Man from London is actually dealing with a more standard uh, story, a crime story, something uh, Hitchcock might have been interested but he does it in his own style and i think the opening of the film uh, is particularly powerful you have a very slow pan shot up from um, the water to a, a docked ship and we see the ship revealed really as slow as possible to get the full immensity of it and then like the opening of damnation where it pulls back to reveal the watcher who's uh, watching the cables uh here we see uh another watcher 
seeing this crime take place. The crime is done in long shot. We play with perspective as as this fellow is seeing this crime taking place, putting it together and seeing how with the money unaccounted for, this could actually work to his advantage. Look, with the deep philosophical poignancies of earlier films, this is doing something different, but I think it's succeeding in what it's doing uh, as well. Right. You're saying that it is taking Tar's style upon being a genre piece for a noir type story, but not going deeper into the kind of um, existential and metaphysical and spiritual questions that have even were prevalent in Damnation. Is that kind of a fair assessment? A little bit. It is going deeper into, into character because we do see how the Watchman's acquisition of the money really changes his perspective and his life and the way he interacts with his family and the the rest of the people in the town. We have a lot of character beats that echo Damnation. It's not as good a movie as Damnation, but it does allow us to look deeper on this kind of a story than a traditional telling of it would normally do. You mean in the sense that upon finding the money, the the kind of dilemma that he experiences is enhanced by he has such a long take on getting the money, finally reveal opening the case and revealing what is inside mm-hmm. and his very long stare at it before he closes it and tries to resume his routine. And don't forget his... Uh trying to dry off the money he recovered from the water by placing each bill one by one uh, on top of his furnace. Being added by the tar style is attention to detail. And in a film like this, that goes a long way. It gives us a different perspective on an old story. I think I can join you part of the way with part of what makes Tar such a unique director. Because if there's two things that define his style is that the takes are really long and he does captivating movement and composition within these really long takes that make them very engaging to watch. I think the first part the very technical fact by the nature that the, how long these takes are, that helps give a different perspective to the story because there is a person who is being in pursuit of our main character before the policeman shows up. And it's one level of suspense to see him appear at inopportune moments at local establishments of his, but it's another to have it focus on his face or focus on the two of them together as the camera moves between them. That's a very peculiar kind of tension because we are as trapped as he is in terms that we can't turn away and get somewhere else. <laughs> and Tar has an almost Leone-like ability to capture these faces. And the man from London himself, this uh, 
older uh, police officer has uh, such an air of mystery about him. He is single-minded about the money, but you also get hints that his motives may not be quite so law and order pure. And so he becomes this menacing presence as well. Yeah, I totally see that. And I sort of see on your perspective that this is done in service of telling a more conventional story, but giving it a unique spin because of the stylistic stuff that, that he's known for. And it's a real interesting question and a fair point to say, does Bellatar need to go into deep, gigantic philosophical questions in every single one of his movies that might not necessarily be the case right he may have made an entertaining thriller bellatar style i do want to call attention to one of the strongest visuals of the film though which is the watchtower itself often filmed at night the way it glows uh provides uh, just an unforgettable uh, location for all this to take place that's very and, true it's a captivating image every time it's presented from the outside and he does make things pretty fascinating because the slats of each one of the window panes is so narrow to each other that when you're when he's observing is continually being broken up by Shots of black, shots of black. It's like an eternal mm -hmm. wipe, if you think about it. Yes, and and here's a guy who, because he's got this money now and has to keep it from people, uh, has to, to, to maintain a low profile. And what could be less of a low profile than <laughs> being in this giant flashlight of a building on this dock that is the most uh, <laughs> eye-catching thing? Yeah, that's funny. The, <laughs> because... You're just describing the architectural version of Jippo from The Informer. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, you know, it's interesting you mentioned The Informer, which we discussed in our last podcast on John Ford, mm -hmm. because he actually has kind of some of the same conflicts as far as uh, how to hide his crime as, as the informer did, but he is, is not quite so boisterous uh, Very uh, true. about things. And, uh, and in fact, this uh, confrontation between uh, him and the, the police inspector, but then also the fellow who did uh, commit the murder at the beginning of the film leads to one of the most unusual action climaxes of a film because uh, through a, a series of uh, intricacies, they find themselves uh, in a shed and a fight is about to ensue. We don't see the fight. This is Bellatar. <laughs> we see the door of the shed for a long time. So we imagine what's going on down there. It should also be noted that this is the first appearance of a uh, Hollywood actor in a Bellatar film. So uh, to speak. One, yeah, Yes, it's, it's Tilda Swinton, so we have to put a lot of asterisks on there yes. for her strange career. My favorite perpetual <laughs> angel from another planet, Tilda Swinton. <laughs> yes. If, Who's just there as his wife. <laughs> yeah. That is, unfortunately, one of the poor parts of the movie because... It attains one of the lamest ever domestic disputes put on film, basically involving Tilda Swinton asking, what are you doing? 
and him failing to provide any answer whatsoever. <laughs> well, if we go back to uh, early Tar, we may uh, remember that marital bliss is not necessarily yeah. his uh, go-to. Yes, that's true. It did... I saw Man from London first before we looked at his early work. So now it is unfortunate to see that some of those wonderful interactions from the prefab people <laughs> made a return engagement on here. I don't really understand what part of this particular kind of male character is so incapable of just telling someone what they're doing. <laughs> it is just some very, very specifically weird block. But it's also unfortunate that Tilda, at that moment after the argument has passed, the camera holds on her, but she doesn't quite understand Tar's method. So she has a range of emotions play on her face. Mm -hmm. But since the camera is not turning away, the result is she is going through 40 to 50 different <laughs> plays of emotion on her face. Her lips are trembling. Her chin is vibrating. And, and her eyes are flashing in many different manners because... She is is almost a seizure level over abundance of emotion coming in almost trapped under glass right. in a way. <laughs> yeah. And the uh, and the movie also does no favors by introducing a character of a person's wife late very very late in the movie and kind of making the emphasis about her which is a transferal which, of attention which doesn't quite really work. Like, our main character sort of leaves the scene, and it's focused on, on this woman, and that's was not really developed that well. Yeah, I could see where it seems kind of added on, but but it was executed so well that I for, forgave the movie that because her, her performance all the, is great. Yeah, all of the kind of the problems you described with Tilda Swinton's performance when she uh, hears bad news and and has to interact with the inspector, uh, this actress really delivers. So I, I was able to forgive that. Very, very true. I sometimes wonder if like if they just had less about the actual plot details of our of our erstwhile main character and maybe made this woman the main character and have have him the observer be more of a catalyst but even what the main character from damnation was effectively able to bring out through stillness mm -hmm. and deliberateness the main character from man from london is played by his the performance is very, very wooden and non-expressive. And I was very much just not engaged on what happens with him because he was too obtuse. I just can't agree with you there. I okay. thought um, uh, that's uh, Miroslav uh, Corbo. And I, I thought he fulfilled the role of the Hitchcockian uh, hero quite well. But I think... I like the film a lot more than you did, although I think we can both agree it, it, it is not one of Tar's best. I guess my ultimate disappointment with the, with the man from London just ironically comes from the fact of the genre, because by virtue of being a film noir, one of the cruel things about film noir is that in the guise of doing these mysteries and whodunits and so on, it does traffic in these really dark and mysterious feelings of say despair of trying to find a place in a world where 
things that you felt were the right rules and ways to behave turn out to be not at all applicable. And that kind of darkness, which is a feature of so many magnificent noirs, including, say, Touch of Evil, for example, to take one of many, many examples. This is some a wheelhouse that Tara's brought in in his own special way through his films. And I think a lot of my disappointment stems from how the techniques that he uses do not bring those out. However, those techniques do so effectively bring out his message and his theme, I feel, in his most recent and possibly his last film, The Turin Horse, in 2011. It's the story of a potato farmer and his daughter who live a life of monotonous drudgery in a barren countryside as a ceaseless windstorm ravages the farm and their horse becomes sickly and stubborn. Soon it becomes apparent that the future and survival of everything they know is uncertain. As you say, it looks like this could be Tar's last film. He has said it is, and that he created this film uh, to act as his last film. And thematically, it's perfect in that way. Yes. Because like Satan Tango and Workmeister Harmonies in particular, there's a sense of impending doom, if not apocalypse yes in a lot of tar's films here the idea of the end the end of what that's what we're going to discuss is made most vivid right even in films like workmeister there have been moments partly due to the contemplative nature of them that go into tangents that look at these detours or things that look to appear, appear to be detours. But this is Tar's skill honed to one complete overwhelming message. You would say that it would be the ultimate post-apocalyptic film, except there is no post to it. But there is a prologue, which is interesting. The, the film is set up as, uh, with, with the uh, story of philosopher Frederick Nietzsche and how near the end of his life he uh, witnessed a man beating a horse. And according to the fable of it, went mad as a result of that. And uh, and died ten years later. Now, some you know there there is the truth that he did go mad near the end of his life. Whether it resulted from this horse beating uh, is something that is made interesting by its inclusion here. But what what Tar asks is, what happened to the horse? <laughs> and so, in another phenomenal opening shot, we see from the horse and his carriage riders 
moving frantically toward uh, camera in what already is uh, a bit of a windstorm. And the effect of this incredibly kinetic opening that attaches us to the horse first and foremost marks a great contrast to what the film will gear itself into which is the daily life of uh the old man and his daughter and this daily life is depicted in this precise yet lusciously darkened gene dealman set of routines of desperation like like clockwork they go rise the daughter helps the father into his clothes she goes out to the well in a gigantic windstorm gets some water then they cook a potato which in one of the greatest examples of human desperation ever put on film you see the father trying to get at the potato but one of his hands is paralyzed and in a pool of light his hand is both trying to peel the skin off but the potato is hot so it's flinching and yet continually grasping towards it because he's so hungry there are two things really interesting about about these scenes Uh, one is how often they're repeated. Yes. Uh, Because one of the themes in the movie is how this life, which seems like not much of a life at all, becomes adapted to, becomes normalcy. So we see, basically with very little variation, this repetition, but because it's Bellatar filming it, it's still hypnotic to watch. But then there's the particular potato thing they are potato farmers so that is the one thing they they have an endless supply of so every time he comes in uh, from the windstorm uh he's very cold and shivering and this potato comes to his plate again steaming hot the visual contrast of him not waiting for the potato to cool down right and just grabbing at it it's a powerful visual yeah really just burned into my memory but the film continues on like you say with these with an increasing amount of things going wrong and them getting a collection of visitors from throughout different parts of society as they are fleeing from somewhere to go somewhere else and what becomes slowly revealed is that this is no ordinary windstorm and there may be nowhere else one of their neighbors comes in and and talks about what's beyond the hill and basically he says nothing is beyond the hill and the horse will no longer eat the horse will no longer perform its chores and the one time they're able to actually get the horse to take them anywhere when they they finally realize that there's nothing for them in this home that's all they know you don't see where they go just like the uh, the shed in man from london where yes. you don't get to to see what's going on inside of it right uh you don't get to see what's beyond the hill yeah but you know that they come back and the implication is again this encroaching 
nothingness, the apocalypse, the end of everything. Yes. So like that potato, the remnants of the society that they have, how little they have it is also slow, slowly peeled away by the the people they visit become wilder. Mm -hmm. And there's even a, a fun moment for those people who don't particularly care for Atar's philosophizing in some of his other works. He leads to a long spiel, a long spiel about um, these really heady concepts, which are concluded by the father saying, okay, I don't understand what you said, but it all sounds like crap to me (laughs) to just keep your mouth flapping. (laughs) It's a very potent member of self, potentially self-criticism. And then just the various elements just fail. Stuff like water and fire. And you know things have gotten really bad when, during these uh, ending sequences, as they continue to try to repeat their routines as best they can, but since there's no more fire to cook the potato, now they're eating it raw. And there's there's an incredibly haunting moment that probably the most haunting potato-related mo- moment one mm. could imagine yeah. where he has to bite into this raw, crunchy potato. And that that's where the repetition of the earlier scenes pay off because we've seen him interact with a cooked potato so often that we know that to not cook the potato is is a signal that things have uh, changed and aren't going back. Exactly. Just just like how Dillman had a uh, event cause things to get out of control, but the way people would behave is to try to maintain whatever they they have as a routine, no matter how awful that routine is. That is brought about so well in the Turin Horse on how our actions, even in the face of an insurmountable and unknowable terror, that is, I feel, so truthful in its despairing nature. Yeah. That feeling, that descent... And that those final moments of crunchy, ever-dimming dissolution of the last things and the last people we see is a perfect, sustained, creative moment from Tar. I think it's Tar's most greatest artistic achievement because he has that message and that message is delivered. And all the details of that message is delivered very nicely all the way from the very beginning out to the very end. Mm-hmm. There are so many details like you describe, but they all flow in for this message of the ultimate conclusion of things. I actually don't think you can have a more definitive final statement as a director. Yeah, it's why I believe Tar when he says it's his last film. It was perfectly constructed as a last film, and now he's moved on to mostly teaching film students and hopefully passing along uh, some of his magic to others. While 
the work of Tar and his collaborators on his last series of films have provided this such a singular, unique vision. It is a vision that I would personally would love to see aspects of replicated and attempted in other movies. I have to tell uh, you, Brad, and you guys listening, that I was very lucky uh, uh, no, a year or so back to see um, an American movie do just such an attempt. It's a film called The Eyes of My Mother from 2016, uh, directed by Nicholas Pessy. And it's a story that may hit some conventional horror beats, conventional for American horror, I mean. But a lot of the touches of it have the style, the precision, and the dedication to holding in on moments of Tar's work. And it has a similar effect that you have this genre piece that works to spook and disturb you, but also goes and looks at the undercurrent to a dark heart of feelings of grief and family loss and a kind of cosmic melancholy that has that we've seen in tar movies also makes its way there. So if you like tar, that's what one of the films I would recommend to guys check out. Well, for me, when I look at who could take on the mantle of tar, the director that most comes to mind is uh, the Thai director I mentioned earlier, who has allowed uh, us Westerners to affectionately refer to him as Joe, who has made a series of really remarkable films like Tropical Malady, Syndromes in a Century, and Uncle Boonmi, who can recall his past lives. And he's working in the contemplative style differently than Bellatar does, but his own unique vision is really powerful. And when it comes to contemplative cinema and kind of the ability to bring spiritual and philosophical issues uh, to the front in unconventional ways. I think he's really a, a director who, who can do some wonderful things coming in the future. Yeah, a most excellent recommendation. Now, we're um, glad you could join us on this journey through Tar and how his filmmaking has been both informed and influenced the genre of contemplative cinema. If you guys have your own impressions on Bellatar, the contemplative cinema work, or our commentary on those subjects, feel free to send an email our way talking about it at directorsclubpodcast at gmail.com. You can find us on iTunes at Directors Club Podcast. And get our episodes through our website at directorsclubpodcast.com. We are on Twitter at DC Podcast. And now we are also on Spotify under Directors Club Podcast. Thanks for listening, guys. And hope to catch you on another episode of the Directors Club. Directors Club.